Well, if you would turn with me again to the second epistle to the Thessalonians, I want to read together the third remaining chapter as we turn our thoughts again to this portion of the Lord's Word. It's my intention to return, Lord willing, next Lord's Day to our studies in the book of Romans and ask the Lord to give us help as we anticipate those studies together. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may have free course and be glorified even as it is with you and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men for all men have not faith. But the Lord is faithful who shall establish you and keep you from evil. And we have confidence in the Lord touching you that you both do and will do the things which we command you. And the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patient waiting for Christ. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly, and not after the tradition which you received of us. For yourselves know how you ought to follow us, for we behaved not ourselves disorderly among you, Neither did we eat any man's bread for naught, but wrought with labor and travail night and day, that we might not be chargeable to any of you. Not because we have not power, but to make ourselves an example for unto you to follow us. For even when we were with you, this we commanded you, that if any would not work, neither should he eat. For we hear that there are some which walk among you disorderly, working not at all, but are busybodies. Now them that are such, we command and exhort by our Lord Jesus Christ that with quietness they work and eat their own bread. But ye, brethren, be not weary in well-doing. And if any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man and have no company with him that he may be ashamed. Yet count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Now the Lord of peace himself give you peace always by all means. The Lord be with you all. The salutation of Paul with mine own hand, which is a token in every epistle, so I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Amen. We trust again the Lord to add His own blessing to the public reading of His inspired Word. Let's bow our heads again and our hearts together. A gracious Heavenly Father, We've sung today hymns that each reflect upon the eternal counsels of God. And we see much evidence of that in the Apostles' testimony with regard to the Thessalonians. Your knowledge of them, that sovereign election of an unworthy people. And Lord, so it is today. It is true of every believer in every age. We are found in Christ, even before the foundation of the world. But in your sovereign counsels, you have brought the message of Christ to us, that even in time we might hear and believe and be changed into His image. Prosper us today. Lord, give us help as we again consider an epistle written to our brethren long ago and yet for today. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
I've been remarking over the last few weeks that we've been taking a 30,000 foot overview of the epistles to the Thessalonians. Well, today, seeing as we'd like to finish our little summer survey on the same Lord's Day that we finish our hiatus from Sunday school and so forth and kind of officially restart next Sunday, I want to start Romans again. So now we have a whole epistle to look at, and so it's not going to be a 30,000-foot overview today. I think we're into the suborbital category of height and elevation. There are so many topics, and certainly topics of great interest when it comes to the prophetic scriptures that we'll hasten through today to be sure. But as we come to this second epistle, understand that 2 Thessalonians is written just a few months after 1 Thessalonians, and as we've remarked along the way, only Galatians is believed to be earlier in Paul's epistles than these epistles to the Thessalonians. I find it remarkable that we find the instruction, as Paul said in closing out 1 Thessalonians, he commanded that the epistle be read in the churches, that in his earliest epistles, the understanding of inspiration and these given these New Testament epistles given for the church, that that practice begin. So I thought we would heed and read the second epistle together today. But I say this epistle or these epistles to the Thessalonians have been written to a vibrant congregation with a good testimony. The Thessalonians had not been in such trouble as the Corinthians were, which we read in some later epistles. There hadn't been failures of leadership there in the presence of open sin like among the Corinthians. But there were dangers. There's evidence in these epistles of detractors. Many of them could certainly have been from outside. I mean, you just think of it. I encourage you along the way a lot to put yourselves into the position of the recipients of these Scriptures. The Thessalonian believers had first heard Paul preach in the synagogue where his practice was and coming to a new city where the Old Testament Scriptures are going to be read. To preach from those Scriptures, opening and alleging that Christ, Israel's Messiah, must needs to have suffered and to have risen from the dead. Souls are saved. Some Jews, some of the Gentiles that were listening, those that came to hear at the synagogues. It was the unbelieving Jews that stirred up the trouble there and then followed Paul to Berea afterward. But I say, putting yourself into that place, the the detractors didn't necessarily have to be members of that Thessalonian church, if you will. People that knew who they were. People that knew they were among that group that left with Paul and started this new thing. They would see them at the grocery store. You really still going after that Paul guy? The interactions and the detraction and distraction from Paul would be great. And I say there's evidence here of those that were seeking to undermine Paul, not as plainly as we see in other epistles later, but certainly they're present. And also, I say, even though this congregation is vibrant and it has a good testimony, there's evidence, as we've read through, that there's a presence of some fear. Fear about those that had died and hadn't lived through to the Lord's second coming. What's going to be about them when when the kingdom comes? There's ignorance that is present among them. There's a lot of knowledge. Paul keeps harking back to things that he'd already taught them. But yet he doesn't want them to be ignorant of certain things. And they have questions. And we also see in Thessalonica that there was some misguided enthusiasm too. 
That's a difficult one to diagnose. Usually the problem in churches and the problem preachers are trying to address is the lack of enthusiasm. But we can corrupt everything and there can be misguided enthusiasm as well. And that's a piece of what Paul has had to write the Thessalonians about. Well, in this second epistle, Paul, in that parenting spirit that we saw in the first epistle, once again comes alongside them to encourage them and to instruct them more towards maturity. And I want in looking at this second epistle today, as we said, with a suborbital view and an embarrassing, if not wrong, uh, brevity looking at the whole of the epistle, to look at it from three perspectives. Past, future, and present. And some of these other terms will be accommodations to just memory and alliteration here. But I want to look first at past experiences. Here's where there's some accommodation because Paul's going to talk about their past and let it bleed into the present a little bit. And present doesn't make it to our sermon until point three, but forgive me. Future expectations in that latter part of chapter one and the first, really almost the whole of chapter two is concerning that. And then chapter three, some present exercises commands and instructions he gives regarding problems that had crept into their midst. So let us pay attention and give heed to, I say, a hasty suborbital view of this whole epistle together. But their past experiences, if you look at the opening five verses of the first chapter, Paul writes to the Thessalonians, and it's interesting that some commentators have found, as it were, evidence here that in the interaction between the first epistle and the second, perhaps the word coming through Timothy, back to Paul, that the Thessalonians are a little embarrassed. They're a little humbled by Paul's praises of them that appear in the first epistle. Again, there's, it's not stated here, but some hint, I say the commentators find, in verse 3 where Paul says, we're bound to thank God always for you, brethren. It's almost as if he's answering something here. You're, you're, you're asking me to pull back on this. No, we're bound to thank God for what he's done. And there's a repetition here. It's not quite as explicit. The emphasis isn't as it was in the first epistle on what precedes the graces. You remember your work of faith, your labor of love, your patience of hope. Those three things that flow out of the graces. But the graces here are stated yet again. If you look in verses 3 and 4, or verse 3 in particular, faith and love, the faith groweth exceedingly, the charity or love of every one of you all aboundeth toward each other. Then in verse 4, we have patience, that endurance, again, that trio of graces found in chapter 1 of the first epistle is repeated here, faith, love, and patience. But the point Paul makes here, and I say here, it's their, their past experiences that he's understanding, he's commending them for. But what has he seen? That those past experiences, those graces that they've already enjoyed, that they've already acted upon, they're still enjoying. They're still acting upon. Their love is growing. Their faith and their patience are continuing. 
Now I say here, there's a lesson for us. We use the phrase often, resting upon our laurels. Well, that is not something that's true of Christians in their pilgrim journey. Even enthusiastic believers like those in Thessalonica, a vibrant, faithful congregation, they haven't said, well, let's just check those boxes of faith, hope, and love, of labor and work and endurance, and we got that done, what's next? Paul commends them for what he's seen in them. He's encouraged that that's continuing in them. And I was thinking of this and just thinking of it from the standpoint of something that's observed and has been present in the past among the Thessalonians. I've mentioned a couple times in prayer meetings a conversation with a dear brother that's of Wesleyan persuasion. And one of the, the pieces of our conversation, again, it flowed out of a comment I made 10 years ago about the law of God. But one of their understandings of sin is this, that sin is a willful transgression of a known law. While a willful transgression of a known law is indeed sin, does that exhaust our understanding of sin? You see, it's possible in that context, and it's happened in some Wesleyan circles and even in some evangelical circles in pursuing a doctrine of Christian perfectionism, that we can reach a point where we're, we're sinless. We're not committing willful transgressions of known laws. We, we've, we've checked that. We're done with that. we just got to maintain the course. But is that what we find in Scripture? Is that the representation of the mindset of the people of God? And I think of David, who in his prayers, and David, who had sadly committed great sin, shows us great evidence of confession. But scattered throughout the Psalms, the comments about sin in the life of the believer. And his prayer, Lord, cleanse me from secret sins. Lord, I have such an understanding of Your law. The spirituality of that law as it touches the thoughts and intents of the heart. That I transgress in so many ways, I can't know them all. I can't name them all to You. I can't check every box and say it's done. I haven't perfectly loved my God with my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I haven't perfectly loved my neighbor as myself today or any day. I need to grow in grace. And again, I just put before you that eighth chapter of Romans that Lord willing soon will be coming to. A chapter that is so filled with assurance. I mean, we would have to say it is the chapter of assurance in the whole of the Bible. I love Octavius Winslow's statements in his wonderful volume on the 8th of Romans. It's a chapter that opens with a statement, there's no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. And it closes with, there's no separation of the believer from his God. But it's in the middle of that chapter filled with assurance 
that we read the Apostle so personally giving testimony that he groans within himself. That we groan within ourselves waiting for something more. Waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our bodies. Waiting for what elsewhere is described in Scripture as being conformed completely and finally to His image. And we speak of it in the context and under the title of glorification. And so the past experiences of believers are not something that we check off and say, that's finished. No, Paul who commends the Thessalonians who tells them whatever the reason, they phrases it this way, he's bound to thank God for them, to give testimony about the grace that they've experienced and possess, that the charity, that the faith, that their patience, that it grows, that it abounds. And I say what an example for us to be challenged as Paul wrote and challenged these believers. Let us never rest upon our laurels. Not in a bondage, discouraged type of way. In the full freedom of understanding justification. In the full expectation of a day of glorification. In the full understanding and satisfaction that there's grace for us today in sanctification. That we might grow in grace. That we might love better those we already love. That we might be more faithful to the one we're already faithful to. That we might have better and stronger endurance during the things we've already and will in the future be called to endure. Paul, I say with gratitude, reflects on their past experiences and the fact that they still are pressing on as he said of himself, not as though he had already attained or were already perfect. But he presses toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. But I want to come secondly today to our second thought of future expectations. 2 Thessalonians 1 and 2, I say, are high watermarks in our study of the prophetic word. There are some pretty specific details that are given to us here. And yet, interestingly, there are details that are mentioned things that have been taught to them already that we don't have fleshed out. There's some questions that we have and that commentators, scholars, individual Christians wrestle with along the way with regard to the future. Well, in our suborbital overview, we're not going to try and handle all of those. But I say the clear and general things that are here. First, in the first chapter, we see here a statement of a return. The return of Christ, clearly the second advent. He's talked about the Thessalonians and the trials and tribulations that they would endure. And beginning in verse 6, he says, seeing it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you. You've been troubled by unbelievers. You've suffered trials, tribulations. God is righteous. He's not unmindful of this. And there is a day coming. We may not see justice put forth in this life always or even often but there is a day coming and in that day he's going to recompense tribulation to those that have troubled his people and he's also going to recompense rest to his believing people 
In verse 7, he says, And to you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven. I'm sure I've mentioned this in the past, but I spent a lot of my young life thinking that rest in verse 7 was a verb. It's a noun. It corresponds to the tribulation in verse 6. God's going to recompense tribulation to those ungodly, and He's going to recompense rest to you. The same way and at the same time He recompenses that to us. And so here we see that this recompensing of tribulation, judgment, and it's described here quite vividly, Verse 8 and following, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God. And notice this, that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. The obligation of a sinner to repent and believe. And he speaks there of their being punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. It's a righteous judgment of God. It is in that coming in which Tribulation is recompensed to the ungodly. And release and blessing recompensed to the godly. But notice in verse 10, it says, When He shall come to be glorified in His saints and to be admired in all them that believe in that day. I've used the phrase for years. Probably heard it in prayer meetings. Prayers here in the services. To be admired and all them that believe. The awe with which we will hold our Savior in that day. We anticipate that day. What is it we sing? The great loved unseen, whom having not seen we love, Peter says. I just think that phrase and even its translation, to be admired in all them that believe, is a worthy statement to commit to memory to anticipate the awe with which we will see him but before that i want to pause a little longer it says when he shall come to be glorified in his saints it's an interesting phrase one particular commentator took a long season to wrestle with it sometimes it's difficult to deal with prepositions. The Greek word en, which often we translate en. Um, It has an E instead of an I, but, but it can also have other shades of meaning. And one I thought put it well, I share with you. He said, when we see this little preposition here about Him being glorified in His saints, it is not among as the word can be translated sometimes. It's not among as if they were a theater and he is in their midst in that way. A theater is unchanged by what is performed there. It is not he's glorified by his saints. By meaning similarly to among. As if they were an audience Witnessing something that might not affect them. It is not through, as the word could be translated, as if they were a mirror through which the reflection is seen. Because again, the mirror is unchanged by what it reflects. No, it should be translated in, in like a filament, 
that is changed and glows with heat when current passes through it. And I was particularly taken that this commentator found occasion in this to reference the transfiguration of the Lord Jesus. He didn't go quite as far as I have in some of my musings on that and sharing it with you that what we see there may very well have been something of the glorified human nature of our Lord's human nature rather than that breaking out of deity as it's commonly understood. But he said in that glory was shining in Him. And that we as God's people in that day, when He will come to be glorified in His saints. There is a sense, and I think it's fitting and fine that we speak in this way of reflecting His glory. But it is more than just a mirror. It's the work and presence of God in us. We speak of the indwelling of the Spirit of God. Now we're waiting. We're in the days of groaning now. I believe we can see as believers grow in grace more and more of Christ reflected in us. We look at the fruit of the Spirit I constantly charge you with that. so easy for us to externalize things and check our boxes and think our Christianity is in great shape and where is the fruit of the Spirit? But in that day, where the old man and the vestiges of sin will be destroyed and completely eradicated, there's mystery about it. John, we read elsewhere, says, it doth not yet appear what we shall be, We might have a few glimpses in the post-resurrection appearances of Christ, but even that, they're just inferences from a couple of things that happen. But we know that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. To be glorified in His saints. We will sing glory to His name, But He will glorify Himself in His people. What a day to expect. What a cause for admiration among those who believe. Well, chapter 1 speaks just simply of that day of judgment. But as we, again, considering future expectations in the epistle, come to chapter 2, It's evident that Paul's addressing problems here, questions that have risen among the Thessalonians. In verse 2, we read even the sources of that. He says, We beseech you, brethren, by the coming of Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together unto Him, that ye be not soon shaken in mind. It's a word used of a ship that's loosed from its moorings. Don't be shaken in mind or troubled neither by spirit nor by word or by letter as from us. Think of those avenues of false teaching. Think how their presence has come in the church. By word, easy enough. The false teacher comes, talks, there it is. By spirit. Even a spirit that works through false teaching. 
The doctrines of devils is spoken of as spiritual opposition. And then he says, by letter, as from us. Some perhaps noting the point of emphasis Paul had in having his first epistle read in the church. Well, here's, a, here's the thing. These people gather to sit under reading. We'll write them something. Has that changed through the history of the church? How many cults have one of their distinctive marks? Extra scriptural writings. And of course, the distinctives of that cult are usually drawn from that book instead of this book. The channels of false teaching remaining the same. The obvious error that had been put forth, and again, there's some fear here, Remember in 1 Thessalonians, some of them were afraid, you know, my loved one or my friend that trusted in the Lord has died before the Lord comes back. Are they going to be with us when He sets up His kingdom? He gives answer to that. Well, here's another fear. Don't be shaken in mind as that the day of Christ is at hand. That somehow it's happened and you missed it. Everything I read in Scripture with regard to the second advent, I mean stuff like every eye shall see Him, flaming fire taking vengeance on them that know not God, it seems to be an event that you couldn't just miss and go to work the next day and not know what's happened. But there are things He says that will precede that day. There's going to be a great apostasy, a falling away first. Now that's an interesting thing to say. Again, I don't want to follow all the millennial views and all the the charges and debates back and forth. But one of the charges against my own particular view, which I think is wrong, is that it's pessimistic. The premillennial view is a pessimistic view of things to come. It's not. It can be. And among the dispensationalists, it became that. But here's Paul, the Apostle, who's writing of a glorious day of Christ's appearing. And yet he says there's going to be a great apostasy that precedes that day. And so that is one of the things he tells the Thessalonians. Look, that day hasn't happened. These things will transpire first. And he speaks secondly of a man of sin being revealed. The appearing of a future Antichrist. This is one of the key passages. There are others indeed. I think it's interesting, and again, we can't come from our suborbital view and touch all these questions, but it seems at least they're pieces of future prophecy that were taught orally to the early church that weren't committed to writing. Paul says here, as he speaks of this individual that's to come, he says, you know when I was with you, I told you this. We read in John's writings, you've heard that Antichrist shall come. Even now there are many Antichrists. Well, some of that oral teaching isn't reflected. I would submit to you one of the reasons, and it's part of some of the big debate in this chapter about what's the restrainer or who is the restrainer. Paul doesn't, specifically delineate that, he references things they'd already heard. 
I think we should point out in verse 7, since we brought up this topic, the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now letteth, as your archaic English for hinder, he who now hinders, and then you have the additional will hinder in italics, until he be taken out of the way. We've wrestled with this. I think that's a mistranslation. It's not the removal of the restrainer that's in view in that last phrase. There's a restraint that is present until he, meaning this man of sin, arise out of the midst. I was reading, I think there are 600 plus times that the word here is used. It's never translated taken anywhere but here. Uh, It's arise until he arise out of the midst actually preceding that word. And I believe that Paul has civil authority in view here and that there's a restraint on the rise of this future figure through that realm until he arises out of the midst of that realm. If you think about Daniel's little horn coming up and displacing other horns in that realm, it fits quite well. But I say here, this, these things must precede the day of the Lord's coming. But I want to focus rather on this in verse 7. The mystery of iniquity doth already work. Mystery in Scripture, we've looked at this before. It comes up in several New Testament contexts. A mystery is not something that's hard to understand. A mystery is not something that's only known by the initiated. You know, you've got to learn the secret handshake before we can tell you that that's not what the mystery is in Scripture. Mystery is something that can only be known by revelation. God has to make it known. We wouldn't get there, as it were, without His guidance and help. The mystery of iniquity doth already There is an anti-Christian spirit that's present in the earth. It's been at work in the earth from the days of the fall. You think even of the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. You think of some of those harbingers of this future character that we find even back in the Old Testament, Nimrod. An anticipation of this man. Others through history. But the point here is that This mystery of iniquity. This presence of an anti-Christian spirit that will have an ultimate final expression in the last days. It's already at work. And the point is, is the ungodly don't see it. They don't get it. They think they're going about doing what they want. But what's been revealed what is clear is that they are taken captive by the devil at his will. And we see his subtlety and the sway he has in the hearts of men. This is part of what we understand when we talk about the world. Love not the world. There's a mindset. There's a purposeful, hidden direction that the ungodly always go. 
It's antagonistic to God. It's antagonistic to Christ. It's antagonistic to God's people. The world knows its own, but you it's going to reject. And I say it's vital for us to understand this. Because we can't look at the world the way other people do. Like, everything's in limbo. Everybody just does their own thing. There's spiritual warfare that's going on in this fallen earth. And to understand that, to be guided by God's Spirit and pulled out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His dear Son is to have your eyes opened to this conflict. And for those that are still blinded and taken captive by the devil, they don't see it and they won't admit it. It's too much an insult to their supposed autonomy. And I think, again, from a suborbital view and hastening through an epistle, to be reminded of the mystery of iniquity, of the working of ungodliness in this world, of how false doctrine, of how bad teaching that corrupts morals, permeates the stuff the world produces. We can find good and beauty in various things in this fallen earth. We can speak of common grace, even in the lives and the experience of the unsaved. But there's a mystery of iniquity There's a principle of rebellion. There's a spirit of going in the other direction and not toward the Redeemer. And we are as fish swimming upstream in this current every day. And we can't look at those that are outside, those that are unsaved, as if they're just freely swimming around however they please. Christ put it plainly. He that's not with me is against me. And there may be some or many in our lives, in your life, that don't profess to be against Him. But in not being for Him and not being with Him, they're part of this mystery of iniquity, the spirit of Antichrist. And if their eyes aren't opened, If they aren't born again by the Spirit of God, they will continue. And if they come to the day in which this man is revealed, they will believe the lie. I put before you again another phrase from this epistle we repeat often. It says in verse 10, because they received not the love of the truth that they might be saved smitten years ago when seeing and reading a commentator on this, that it's a spiritual, moral thing here, not a merely intellectual thing. It doesn't say because they receive not the knowledge of the truth, they're going to be deceived. It said because they receive not the love of the truth. That means there are people that have heard the gospel that know what it is, they're going to believe the man of sin. 
they're going to go that way. And to me, a sobering facet of this is the divine, sovereign condemnation that accompanies their rejection. They had not a love of the truth. God will send them strong delusion. You think of all the stuff that's outlined here. The the miracle working of this future figure. Signs and lying wonders. As Christ says in His Olivet Discourse, that if it were possible, even the very elect would be deceived by these things. But added to that truly remarkable, supernatural deception will be a delusion that is sent from the hands of God. God will send them strong delusion because they did not have a love of the truth. That is a sober application indeed. Well, these are just some almost more devotional thoughts on these two portions of prophetic information in chapters 1 and 2. But from past experiences and future expectations, let us come thirdly and finally today to consider something of their present exercises. Paul says, chapter 3, Finally, brethren, pray for us. Well, what a, what a line. I don't say it in vain or as an empty repetition when often I repeat at the door as you're leaving, pray for the preacher. If such a one as Paul asks for the prayers of God's people, I need doubly to ask for such prayers. But he says, pray for us that the word of the Lord may have free course and be glorified. One translates it that the word might run and have impact. Let us pray that that be true of the word. But then Paul brings up for them a matter of discipline. We've read the whole of the book today. We read here something of this discipline Those in the church, those who with admonition from the apostle were charged on this matter. Some were working not at all. They were busybodies. Many think that it's perhaps some of these that were caught up with their enthusiasm about eschatology that had them pull back. Maybe they were enthusiastic about errors But you know, we can become enthusiastic about truth to the exclusion of other truth. Yeah, the Lord's coming back. We don't know when. It could be soon. Don't put the equal sign there. Quit my job and sit on the hills and wait. No. If you don't work, you don't eat. Man. I wonder if that text could ever be printed and put out in the civil public arena. That's staggering something to hear there. But Paul mentions this happening among them. But he mentions here in Second Thessalonians 3 is a, is a pretty big chapter with regard to a principle of separation. They may come to a point where someone is admonished. They don't heed the admonition. They're admonished again. They don't heed it that believers are told to withdraw. Now, it's interesting. 
He says, verse 15, count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. I think sometimes separatists have failed in applying that particular part of this principle of separatism here, even from disobedient brethren. That's the point in this chapter. We can separate from false teachers, clearly have to do that. We separate from the world, but here's a a principle alongside those separating even from disobedient brethren. But I say here this principle that's put before us here and challenging to the Thessalonians. Just some, I guess, again, 30,000 foot or orbital thoughts here on separation. Can I just put some crystallized phrases before you? When it's in our power to make a change, whether that's, say, in discipline of disobedience or ungodliness among the people, or whether that's firing bad teachers in seminaries. When it's in our power to make a difference, then we we exercise discipline. We police ourselves, as it were, in the church. But there come times among God's people where believers lose the power to effect change. Maybe things weren't dealt with early enough. And you come to Presbytery, and all of a sudden the false teachers got more votes than the Orthodox teachers have. Well, what do you do then? Well, that's when, as I say, when you have power to make a change, you you exercise discipline. When it's out of your power to make a change, then you leave. Because... You can't be identified with what's come to control the institution or the denomination or the local church or whatever. And that's how these things should be worked out, all with the the goal and the end of preserving a testimony of truth and of real godliness. And here's a point where Paul calls upon the Thessalonians to exercise wisdom in, in that particular way. But I want to close our thoughts and our overview of these epistles this summer with the words we found in verse thir- we find in verse 13 but ye brethren be not weary in well doing i know there's a context for this phrase and it's in that context of the disorderly brother and his obedience or lack thereof But what an undergirding principle. What a phrase for us to commit to memory. Be not weary in well-doing. So many illustrations in the Scripture. Derek was sharing with the men yesterday at the breakfast something about walking we've seen in our look at Thessalonians. That steady, if at times unspectacular, progress. There are other metaphors used for us in the New Testament warfare and athletics. Running the race. Well, in the midst of exertion in that way, there can be a tendency to grow weary. Well, that's where we take up that first psalm we looked at in prayer meeting this past week. Yes, if we're dependent upon ourselves... Weariness can set in almost immediately. But if we're transplanted, 
not left where God found us, but transplanted by the rivers of water, that inexhaustible supply that's constantly flowing by and around the roots of the tree, well, that's where we're enabled to press on. We're enabled, having already loved our brethren, to have that charity toward one another abounding. We're enabled, having that work of faith present already, to continue on having faith, having good works flow out of what we believe. And if, like the Thessalonians, who received the word in much affliction, yet with joy of the Holy Ghost, have an endurance, a patience that flows out of their hope. And it is with those three graces and what flows from them that He opens this correspondence. As we come to that last phrase, that we rest on those graces, that we not be weary and well-doing. The many ways where our own weakness, our own flesh, the devil's temptation and the discouragements that can be brought to bear upon us, that we not be weary and well-doing. To pull elsewhere from Scripture, for in due season we'll reap if we faint not. Well, I trust the Lord has given help and I say these overviews of these epistles this summer. God would grant us to be as these Thessalonians, growing and even abounding in every grace. Let's bow our heads together. Our Heavenly Father, we are grateful as we've read these epistles this summer that You have chosen to preserve what You've inspired to bring to them that it might be brought to us. And Lord, we can look around both from the minister's seat and the pews, and and see much of what we find among the Thessalonians. Much in which the Apostle would say he's bound to give thanks to God. And Lord, we with gratitude for that, just take these thoughts from today and pray that You will give us grace to press on with the Apostle through thick and thin, through days of encouragement and days of discouragement, in the face of battles of false teaching and false living that are obviously present in our times, and that You would help us to remain joyful and not to weary in the path of well-doing. Prosper Your Word to that end to us, Lord. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.